Well, not only does life, uh, love feel like a battlefield, but often life feels like a battlefield. Just because life can bruise us and we can run into each other. And certainly in relationships, that's true. The people we care the most about, our kids, our parents, our friends, our co-workers, are the same ones that we have misunderstandings with, that we break trust with. We've got to figure out how to put the pieces back together again. And it's not all easy. It's not all rainbows and lollipops. It's actually a lot of hard work to repair when you bruise somebody. It's a lot of hard work to restore trust. And yet in our series, Battle Stations, we've been looking at how to fight for forgiveness, how to fight for reconciliation. And today we're going to really develop how to fight to restore trust when trust has been lost between you and a boss, you and a coworker, you and a spouse, you and a father, you and a, a brother. How do we do that? And to hear that, I want you to see the power of some of these truths that the Bible describes. The power of grace, the power of hope, the power of love, the power of strength to seep into some of the most difficult battlefields in life, some of the most difficult moments, and to take things that seem impossible and bring them back together. I want you to hear the story of a couple who had a tragedy in their life and how a very unlikely friendship came because of the grace of God. Let's watch. You see, when we prefer to we prefer to wait until we feel like forgiving. But if we do that, then our lives are dictated by At the fire department we work twenty four hour shifts. And that particular day we didn't get hardly any sleep. It was literally like three or four seconds to nod off and to cross the center line and and to meet the other car. Forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling. I'm supposed to be a helper, the EMT and the paramedic and the fireman that, that helps in these tragic situations. And here I am, calls this. See, forgiveness makes us victorious. Two men of service, one a pastor, the other a rookie firefighter, forever bound in tragedy. For them, it's hard to believe over a decade has passed. I can still see it. I can still smell it the horrendous noise and the glass breaking. When the grief counselor approached in the hospital, Eric Fitzgerald knew his wife, June, was gone, leaving their 19-month-old daughter, Faith, without a mom. Faith's just sitting there playing on the little hospital bed with the, the nurse, and of course she sees me and just reaches out. I don't know what she understood, really. But she crawled into my lap, and she just went to sleep. And I was thankful, because um, I didn't have to pretend that everything was okay. <clears throat> and I was at the hospital, and a police officer came in. And he said, uh, I don't know if anyone's told you, but June didn't make it. And then he also told me, he said, and by the way, she was seven months pregnant, and the baby didn't make it either. Eric, you had the opportunity to really say to the judge, you know what, I think this guy deserves some hard time. What did you do? I remember somebody said this in a sermon. In moments where um, tragedy happens or, or even hurt, that there's opportunities to demonstrate grace 
or to exact vengeance. And I chose to demonstrate grace. The men knew of each other but endured their grief apart until the two-year anniversary of June's death. Max Watzell had stopped by the grocery store to buy a condolence card for Eric when he spotted him in the parking lot. Eric starts walking out of the grocery store and starts walking towards my truck. What do you see in the window? He was just, just bawling. Yeah. And, um, so I just walked up and I just hugged him. Um, I mean, it, you know, what do you say? You know, something, sometimes things are best said with no words. That hug must have felt like someone had just put a pin in two years of pressure. That was the, uh, the biggest relief I'd ever felt. He just said from the start that he forgave me. And uh, just hearing him say those words, um, it just impacted my, my life completely. They talked for two hours that day. And where you might imagine the relationship would end. I said, man, I don't know what you're going to say to this. I said, but I just feel like in my spirit that I'm supposed to stay connected to you somehow. And he's like, dude, I, I feel the same way. We knew it was something special. We just had this instant bond. It's unexplainable. It's just easy to talk to each other. We would just talk about life, you know, just how we're doing and just moving forward. And he said, don't let this define you. Meeting with Eric, it gave me hope that we're going to be okay. Sports Illustrated, baby. Oh. As the years unfolded, strangers became friends and something even more. I'm witnessing a little bit of a miracle with you two sitting here together. There's a bond that we have um, that's unexplainable. He's like a big brother to me. You know, we have a lot of fun together, you know, as weird as it may sound and, and crazy, but we do. It's just unique. I can't say this is a beautiful story and it's got a great ending. It doesn't. It's nasty. It's real. And it's something that I'm going to struggle with for the rest of my life. Both men view their friendship as a sign from above. Another sign? Years later, Eric remarried and was expecting a child. The baby was born on the same due date as the son he'd lost. Forgiveness is not minimizing the offense. Eric practices what he preaches and raised his daughter Faith to choose love over anger. So next year, that means you're going to play varsity. Most likely. Yeah. I usually just say my mom got in a car accident. I just don't want people to think that Matthew's a bad person because he isn't. He just made a mistake. I just want her to know that she's loved. She's not alone. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Throughout her whole life, I'll be there for her. No matter what. So just seeing Faith, you know, holding my kid, it puts a smile on my face. It hurts, but it's the cards that we were dealt, and, and now it's our story together. It reminds me that there's grace, and there's hope, and there's good. I mean, Jews in heaven, you know, and one day, you know, we'll get to all kind of hang out. And so, you know, God's a big God, and uh, I think that's going to be a great day one day. As you hear that story, as you hear that song, you're like, well, I got a situation in my life that seems 
irreconcilable. It seems unfixable. But if God could work in that situation, then maybe he could work in mine. Maybe you need some grace to flow over you because of how life has treated you or because some relationship you care about has been broken. Let's begin this morning with a prayer that maybe God could meet you in the midst of whatever circumstances you're in, whatever trust has been broken. Let's pray together. Father, we come in looking good, but behind the mask, behind the veneer often is sadness breakages and things that matter most. So, Father, many of us here, we're not sure we believe in you or your son or the Bible, but we want what we just saw. We want a taste of what we just sang about. So, Father, would you bring hope to those who feel hopeless this morning? Would you cover those who need covered of guilt or shame? Would you bring instruction for those of us who are trying to navigate very difficult and messy circumstances in our own life? God, we thank you that this Easter season, this moment leading up to Easter, you remind us about the power of forgiveness and the power of initiating to cover that which is broken. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we continue this series today, we're going to look at exactly what happened in that story. I mean, can you imagine that there could be not only forgiveness, that would, that would be a miracle in of itself, let alone reconciliation, let alone that these folks could restore trust with one another and have a friendship. That's the stuff of movies, it's not the stuff of real life, Right? But in this series, we've been looking at forgiveness in its multiple stages. We've said that forgiveness takes one. You can forgive someone even if they're not repentant, even if they don't apologize. But it takes two people to reconcile. And sometimes you want to reconcile with a son or a daughter or a spouse or, or a coworker, but they're just angry and don't want to reconcile. And, and it's not up to you. It takes two people to reconcile. But even that, the bigger stage, the longer stage is restoring trust. It takes time and evidence to restore trust. And today I want to spend my time on that. How do you restore trust when it's broken between two individuals? What's a real process by which we see what we experience in that video and song happens in real life? Because isn't it true? You, you You can sink a ship with one shot and it's going to take a lot of time to rebuild that. Right? It only takes one text, one email, one secret, one lie to come out, and all of a sudden years of relational capital you have between you and a mother, a mother-in-law, a son, a daughter, or a friend. You get one text, gossipy text, one moment when you hear somebody saying something malicious about you, and there's a trust that is broken. And you don't just get that back by saying, I forgive you. It takes time to rebuild. In fact, do you remember when the U.S. coal was shot, there was a suicide bomber who came in, and it just took like one moment, one second, and all of a sudden they blew a hole in one of our strongest, biggest warships. And yet in order to repair that one shot, that one missile, that one moment, it would cost $240 million, 500 people working around the clock in Mississippi. 
Because they wanted to keep confidential the parts and pieces, parts of our worship, it was built in what's called a swap-out module. They actually built that section of the ship separately in another part of the shipyard. They then cut that whole chunk out of the ship, and they basically just stuck a new chunk in and welded it back together. One moment, one second to blow a hole in that ship, $240 million and 500 people later in order to put it back together. And that is the process of restoring trust. It takes time to repair what it took a moment to destroy. And so I want to give you three components of rebuilding trust. And here's my hope, is that you can see that trust is possible, that there's a pathway to trust, and that you don't have to be naive. Because I think if you're not a Christian today, and you know some Christians, you know Christians are pretty naive. And the whole idea of forgiveness feels pretty naive. You know, something I'm going to forgive you, even though you just punch me in the face, I'm going to say, hey, let's try it again, right? Thanks, can I have another? Thanks, can I have another? It just seems pretty naive. And I want to talk, there's a difference between forgiveness and restoring trust. And so the components of restoring trust are different. You don't have to be naive to restore trust. And I want to give you three components to that. And the first component you might welcome, in light of what I just said, the first component to restoring trust is skepticism. You should be skeptical, right? If you found a hidden bank account, if you found that your spouse was having an emotional affair at best over Facebook or over text, if you find out there's an affair going, if you find out that that trust has been broken in a serious way, if you find out that your kids for the third time have missed curfew, that an employee has missed deadlines, it is not spiritual to say, well, we'll hope for the best. They said they're going to do it better next time. Now, probably the best predictor of future behavior is previous behavior. The beginning of restoring trust is skepticism. I'm skeptical things are going to change because you've continued to do this over time. And so that's okay to be skeptical. In fact, it's healthy to be skeptical. It would be normal to be skeptical. You should be skeptical because trust has been broken. As we've been looking at the book of Acts, there's this apostle who wrote most of the books in the New Testament named Paul. And before he was Paul, he was Saul, and he was a tyrant. And he was killing off Christians. He has this encounter with God that radically changes him. But it's on the inside. Who knows if it's real? And so he says it's real, but who's going to trust the guy who's been killing off your friends and neighbors? I'm not. And so it says that Saul, now Paul, tried to join the disciples. And how did these Christians respond to this man who had this incredible encounter with God, had this incredible story with God? It said, when he tried to pursue them, he tried to join them, they did not believe he was a disciple. They were skeptical. Based on his track record, they should be skeptical. This isn't believable. This doesn't seem true. You're going to have to prove it. And so if you've had a break in trust, it is perfectly healthy and perfectly okay to at least begin the process with skepticism. We've got to see some changes. I remember a friend came and knocked on our door when we lived in Atlanta. And she said, my husband and I have had this conversation many times, but I just, I'm done. Here's a friend of mine. So I just found all, all kinds 
all kinds of pornography on his computer, and I just feel like I'm always living up to trying to compete with, you know, people who don't even really exist who've been photoshopped. And and he came over a little bit later that day after I talked to his wife and got a chance to talk with him. And he said, oh, and I told her I promised I wasn't going to do this again, and, and and I've made this promise before, and I just I feel shame and I feel embarrassed, and now you're involved, and you know, embarrassed not as my pastor but as a friend. It just this as we talked together about the, the trust that had been broken, the promises he had made, and, and his, I said, what is she wanting? She, well, she's skeptical that I'm going to be able to keep my promise and not do this again. And, and I can't believe that she'd be skeptical of this. I'm like, well, I can. Right? I said, I'm a guy. I know what it's like to struggle with pornography. It's not one of my top ten struggles, but I, I have, I've had that feel. I, I've been on those sites before, and I've had to know that there's something so broken in me that I've got to put something in place Put my computers in open areas, not, not be on the computer after night, not when I'm tired of being discouraged. I know what it's like to give my wife, make sure she has access to my passwords and my, and my Facebook pages because I want to know if she can trust me. And he recoiled at the idea, well, she should just trust me anyway. So, well, why would, why do you even trust you? Your track record's been not to trust you. You shouldn't even trust yourself. You need mechanisms in place to help protect yourself from these paths you go down. I said, I have those mechanisms in place in my marriage. She, Beth could at any time check our bank accounts. I don't have secret accounts that she can't check and see how we're spending. But he had lived his life with such secrecy. The idea of accountability and openness and the idea that somebody he had harmed would be skeptical almost seemed inappropriate or, or disrespectful to him. But rebuilding trust, there should be skepticism initially. I told you I've been trying to rebuild a relationship with my brother for about 10 years. It took me five years after things I've been accused of that were not true, I don't think are true. I spent five years rebuilding a relationship where at least we started to talk. And I talked about that uh, many years ago that we started talking together. But I haven't seen my brother in a while. We talked on the phone about a month ago. He was kind of upset that we didn't invite him to my daughter's wedding. But I said, I just don't have time for drama. And until I can kind of I want to enjoy my daughter's wedding and I don't necessarily want you to come and accuse me of stuff because every time you contact me, it's just accuse me of stuff. So I've forgiven you. I don't feel bitter at all. I want to have a relationship. Sounds like you do too. But I don't want to bring chaos into my life. So we had this good talk in December, but it's a painful talk. I hadn't seen him since then. So we go home to my dad's 70th birthday party two weekends ago and it was through a strange encounter. My dad was there, my brother was there, but my mother-in-law decided to drive to my dad's birthday party, which was fine but weird. And so we're there and through a whole weird circumstance, my mother-in-law starts talking to my brother while I was talking to some old friends. And my mother-in-law tells me later, she says, Chad, I was talking to Ryan and I told him how much you've bragged on him over the years. How you've talked about how smart he is and, and how he was one of the smart ones in the group and, and how proud you were of him for you know, going to Nashville and trying to make it in the music industry and going out to L.A. and Hollywood and trying to make it in the video industry and, and becoming a, a YouTube creation artist that's actually making money now in Hollywood. And my brother's jaw dropped to hear that I've been encouraging about him over the years, that I've spoken that he was smart and, and I, I respected him. He turned to my mother-in-law and he says, ah, like the same Chad that we've been fighting over that I've accused of all these things, like says nice things about me? He says, thank you for sharing that. So Nancy came that evening and told me about this conversation she had with my brother. And we've been hanging out and having a good time. And, and even though 
he had not talked to my kids for 10 years. And I, I told him, well, why would I invite you to my kid's life when you haven't even initiated contact for 10 years, a decade? I said, but if you want to have a relationship, we're open to it. We're really open to it. We're excited about that. So for him to, to meet my daughter really for the first time as an adult and her to be incredibly gracious and kind and, and my, my son-in-law, Ryan just really felt loved by us and that was intentional by us. But there was still skepticism. Can he trust us and could we trust him? And I could tell that what my mother-in-law had said to my brother was very, very powerful to him. And I felt like God was saying, Chad, I want you to go make some time with your brother in the middle of all the people around and I want you to say that to your brother face-to-face, one-on-one. And trying to find a window in all families in town with one person is very difficult. So I, I, and I kept going, well, that's just not worth it. It's just too much of a hassle. He's about to leave. I felt like God was saying, no, I want you to go and initiate the next stage of rebuilding trust. So I went downstairs not feeling particularly emotional. Just, hey, Ryan, I heard you talk to my mother-in-law and she shared some things with you. And he said, yeah. I said, I want you to know it's directly from me that we're never going to agree on what happened 10 years ago. But I love you. And I have spoken to my kids how much I appreciate about you. And I have honored the courage you have to go and chase your dreams and be easier just to take a job that would have been easier just to make a paycheck. And I've really appreciated you as a brother. I've appreciated, and I've mentioned several qualities of him. I said, I don't necessarily think my opinion is that important. But sometimes as a pastor, people take it as more important than it is. And I never thought of my, my voice as an older brother as being particularly of importance to you because every time you call me you tell me how I'm wrong I am I didn't say that part <laughs> he says it is important to me I said well I love you I respect you and I have seen amazing things that God's done in your life he said I, I can't tell you what that means to me he said watching you with your kids as adults, I'm amazed at the kind of relationships you've built with your adult kids. I wish I could have that with my adult kids, which are the ones that he sort of told me I'm not allowed to talk to. So it was interesting to see how trust was beginning to be rebuilt. I got really tearful. I, I didn't see it coming. I sort of got sabotaged. Uh, I got tearful just sharing this short little thing with him. He said, Chad, the other thing I'm realizing is how guarded I am. And seeing Dad get emotional at his 70th birthday party seeing you get emotional now, I just realize I'm not particularly open. I've been hurt before. And uh, so thank you. So I don't know where that road's going to go, but skepticism toward him, toward me, and me toward him is totally appropriate. And yet I want to initiate be part of the next step. And that's the next step is to move from skepticism to evidence. Rebuilding trust is going to require evidence. And there's nothing wrong wrong with expecting evidence and wanting evidence. And if you have violated somebody's trust, be it your parents, uh, be it your brother, be it an employer, be it a spouse, the idea they should forgive you and you should start right back where you are is naive. You, if you violate a trust, should say, yeah, I've got to now provide evidence to reestablish trust. In fact, it's exactly what happens with Paul. And that's what happens with Paul. He's got this guy named Barnabas who is really well-respected in the Christian community. Barnabas has kind of taken Paul aside at great risk to himself and begin to see his life, look at his life, examine his life up close and personal. And as he's done that, look what happens. Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles, the people who didn't believe, the people who were skeptical. And he, Barnabas, declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. Let me tell you what the story that Paul has. Let me tell you what happened to him. And that he had spoken to him. He'd interviewed him. 
and how he had watched Paul preach boldly about the things he was persecuting before. His speech had changed. His behavior had changed. More than that, the changes he was making in his life were coming at a great cost. When he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there were people attempting to kill him. There is so much evidence. And so... Paul goes through a process that he's patient with the people. It's understandable that you don't believe me. I tried to kill you two days ago, a month ago. He's accountable and humble to needing to provide evidence to the people he's broken trust with. I want you to see four points in here that I think are worthwhile as you're thinking about restoring trust with somebody you've harmed or needing trust from somebody who's harmed you. Number one, it's important to have someone else Someone else testify to the results of change. In other words, whether it's struggling with pornography or struggling with alcoholism and being an alcoholic, your assessment of yourself is not particularly objective. You're going to always paint yourself better than you are. You're going to, you've had a history of maybe skewing the past or, or lying about what's happened. So you need somebody else to say, no, no, I am seeing differences in your life. Sort of call you on your crap, to call you on your self-lies. Someone else to say, I'm hearing things coming out of you that are different, that are new, that are fresh. Are you willing to be accountable to say, I put somebody else in my life and say, honey, are you seeing me be more sensitive? Honey, are you seeing more consistency? Are you seeing me prioritize the right thing? First, no, I'm doing fine. It would it, be naive to trust an alcoholic's assessment of themselves, a gambler's assessment of themselves, a self-centered person's assessment of their self-centeredness. So there's someone else to testify of change. Number two, you might say, well, in my heart I believe it. In my heart, I don't doubt your heart. But nobody can see your heart. So part of restoring trust and putting evidence in place is changes people can see in your calendar, see in your behavior. They could see Paul speaking boldly in ways he wasn't before. The way you speak changes people can see. And lastly, changes that come at a cost. If you're going to make real changes in your life and and restore trust that you have broken over time, it's going to come costly. It's going to cost you something. Well, I shouldn't have to pay that. Yeah, you should. The cost of breaking trust was great to the people around you. And the cost of restoring trust may not be $240 million, but it's going to come at a cost. So if it doesn't cost you anything to restore trust, whether it's a teenager, like, you shouldn't have to be grounded. I shouldn't have to lose my phone for a week. No, no, you should. The cost of saying, I realize what I did. I realize I violated your trust. And I'm willing to go through that process. So at my dad's birthday party, just some incredible, powerful stories. This guy came up to me at the birthday party. My dad had not talked to him in like seven years. He said, i got to tell you a story about your dad. He said, I hated your dad. It's a great opening story, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> he said, I grew up with your dad, and I hated him. I never knew why, but I just... We grew up in a rough part of uh, Peoria in the, in, called the, the, the Meadows. And I just wanted to beat your dad up all the time. And this guy was tough. In fact, he would later go on to be an enforcer of a, uh, a motorcycle gang. That's who this guy would later become. He said, I hated your dad. I didn't realize till the last 10 years I was just jealous of him. He said, so every day, just hated your father. We separated and see each other. Your dad became a sixth grade teacher. I didn't see him until one of my kids was in sixth grade. And your dad was teaching one of my 
kids. And my kids got in trouble and they were going to be suspended. And, and I got called in to the principal, Mr. Hovind, and my son. And I just wanted to punch your dad in the mouth. He said, and your dad was so kind. Helped me navigate the situation with my son. How can I be helpful? How can I serve? And I just walked out of there. Didn't trust your dad. Still want to punch him in the mouth. But I thought, that was weird. <laughs> a couple years later, another child. Same kind of encounter with your dad. My kids had kids. Some of my grandkids got in trouble. And I get, heard from my kids how they went into the office. And Mr. Hoven helped them with their kids. He said, but the biggest thing happened about 10 years ago. My dad's in a Christian motorcycle group, which lots of guys there are talking about how my dad had impacted them through his relationships and taking people to Sturgis and just these great motorcycle trips. Well, my dad had heard that this guy he grew up with had some kind of terminal disease or at least a pretty serious diagnosis. So, And so my dad turned a couple of buddies in his CMA group, Christian Motorcycle Association group, and said, you know, we, we should go over to his house and pray for him. My dad hadn't seen this guy in years, didn't know him at all, except the guy who wanted to beat him up as a kid. So my dad literally walks up with another buddy from the motorcycle group, knocks on his door. He says, your dad came to my door. I didn't want to let him in. I couldn't believe, what's he doing here? He knocks on the door. He says, I heard you got a bad medical report. And man, I'm just really, I'm really hurting for you. And I just want to let you know we care. I couldn't believe this guy I hated, hated, would, would say he cared. I didn't even believe it. He came in. He said, you know what? Would you mind if I prayed for you? He's telling me this. He says, I've never had anyone in my life pray for me. Your dad came in and prayed for me. He said, I haven't talked to your dad until today. It's been many, many years. That day changed my life. All the hatred, all the anger, all the jealousy. And that was the final moment of all these little moments that my dad had invested over years. Not even knowing he was investing him, was rebuilding trust in his relationship with God and a different kind of living and a different kind of person and what it meant to live in a life of forgiveness and grace and caring for people who even treat you poorly. He said, I went and told your dad just a few minutes ago that I've, be, I've become a follower of Jesus. Uh, my whole life has changed. I'm becoming a better grandfather. I'm becoming a better dad. All because somebody I saw as a mortal enemy treated me so kindly over time. Evidence in the little things over time is how you restore trust. And if there's something you need that recoils against needing to provide evidence, then you're not broken yet. You don't realize what you've done yet. Little things matter. It's amazing how people notice little things. Little things my dad didn't notice, he noticed. My dad was just sort of living life. I was saying that at the hearth room about a month ago, maybe three weeks ago. And it's funny the little things people notice that I don't notice. Because I don't notice a lot of little things. Somebody came up to the hearth room and he said, Hey, Jack, can I talk to you for a second? So we stepped into the hearth room for a moment. And he said, are, are you doing okay? I said, I, I think so. <laughs> he said, well, this might be too personal, but you know, you've talked a lot in the last year, just all the challenge you've had with your son Quinn, the challenge you've had with your, your wife's back issues, and, and you know, you've shared pretty openly about you know, challenges you've had in your marriage and you and Beth working through these really difficult circumstances. And I've noticed that you're not wearing your wedding ring for last year. Well, I have uh, this ring that I got from my parents for my master's degree, and I forget which hand it goes on because my wedding ring never comes off. But it had come off. And he noticed that I had my gold ring on this hand, but I wasn't wearing my gold ring on my other hand. 
And I said, man, thank you so much. I didn't say, oh, I can't believe you're talking about that. It's all too personal. I appreciate that somebody noticed. I didn't. Uh, I just I got you magic with this uh, ring, so sometimes I put it back in the wrong hand. So I just was doing some magic one time, and, you know, I put it back in the wrong hand. So I always forget which hand to put it back on. But I said, actually, my son and I last year were going kayaking down the Miami River, and that ring never comes off. I mean, it's like soap if we can get it off. But apparently my hand got cold, and we both had tipped over and got sucked under this tree, and my ring fell off. My wedding ring fell off, and I didn't notice it until a few days later. So thank you for, for, for caring. And I thought, boy, look at the little things people notice. And so my wife and I just got back. We went for our 25-year anniversary to Maui. So we just got back two days ago, so I'm still jet-lagged. But while we were there, uh, I got a new wedding ring. Um, so you're going to see all my nervous energy because it's fun. It spins. Uh, so whenever I do this, you can come start doing this to tell me I need to stop during sermons. It was to celebrate our 25-year anniversary, which, was, uh, which is coming up this next month for our trip. But, you know, 25 years of marriage, I can tell you, there's moments in marriage. It's not, if you talk to anybody who's really been married, it's not all bliss. It's not always, wow, we all get along, we found our soulmate. It's, it's, you disagree with each other, you say, I married the wrong person. It's, it's things you, you feel like, oh my goodness, she's never going to understand me, or he's never going to understand me. There's moments you break trust, and you have to repair, and you have to forgive, and you have to reconcile. There's times it's going to take time to restore for some of the areas you break trust in. That's just the reality of real life and real marriage. But it's the little things in relationships, in family, in marriage, that restore trust. And when we break those things, it's okay to be skeptical. And when we break those things, we want to provide evidence to restore what's broken. And that's going to require a third component. And that third component is it's going to require, if you want to rebuild trust, whatever it takes, humility. Not just a little humility. Whatever it takes, humility. And often people who get caught doing something... Whether it's breaking curfew or missing a deadline or an emotional affair starting on Facebook. Initially, it's just that you feel guilty that you were caught, but you're still pretty arrogant. You shouldn't need accountability. You shouldn't have any kind of new systems or management put in place. You don't have real humility, let alone whatever it takes humility. And the people I've seen over time who've been able to not only reconcile but restore, the person who broke trust and the other had whatever it takes humility. Whatever it takes, this, this relationship means so much to me. What happened hurts me as bad as it hurts you, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to restore it. It's interesting, when Jesus comes and, and talks to Saul before he becomes Paul, he has a very interesting phrase to him. He says, Saul, it is hard to kick against the goads. It's a weird thing to say. Yeah, I guess that is hard. I don't even know what that means. In the agricultural community, if you were pushing an ox to till your field, you would have a goad. And a goad was a stick that had like an iron uh, ending to it. And you'd use that to sort of nudge the ox to steer in different directions. And if you nudged the ox and he resisted, he rebelled against that, the more he rebelled against it, the more that, that piece of iron would stick into him. So the more rebellion, the more pride and arrogance, I don't have to go where you're going, you farmer. You farmer, don't make me, I'm an ox. For crying out loud, I got the power. The more you resisted, the more it hurt. And God uses this phrase to Saul to say, Saul, you've been on the wrong path for a while. You've been plenty religious, and your religion has led to judgmentalism. It's led to killing people in my name. And I've been nudging you. I've been trying to steer you. And you have been kicking against, pushing against, resisting my steering of your life. It's been hard, hasn't it? 
The more you've resisted my nudgings, my steering, the more pain has come into your life. Paul, you have a huge problem with pride. And Paul, in this moment, is able to hear that from God in a really incredible way. He realizes that the lives he's hurt, the people he's imprisoned, the innocent people he's killed, the weight of that begins to hit him. And he realizes God's been trying to steer him away from that. He says this, he says, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? I will do whatever it takes to fix this. What do you want me to do? He doesn't say, I'll do this or this. Hey, here's a list of things I won't do. What do you want me to do? And if you've broken trust and you really want to restore that, you need to ask yourself, have you moved from pride to humility? Because that's very, very hard to do. Because pride is what got you in. Almost every affair started with, with pride. Almost every person who thought they could fudge the books, every person who thought they could have a secret bank account, every person who thought that they could sort of move, it started with pride. I'm above the rules. I don't have to be accountable. To move to humility, I'm open to feedback, to whatever it takes humility. I'll do whatever it takes to restore trust. And that's what happens. He, he goes through a process. He lets Barnabas examine his life and look into his life and present for him and, and give a case for him. And it's this, whatever it takes humility, that I've seen as the secret to people restoring trust between brothers, between husbands and wives, between moms and dads, bosses and employees. So the question is, are you at a place that you're humble? I remember when uh, 1980s Ronald Reagan was going to go and try and do a deal with Gorbachev. And his speechwriter came to him, who's, Suzanne was her name, and she said, one thing you need to understand about the Russians is the Russians love their proverbs. He says, I want you to put some proverbs into your speeches. And one of the famous Russian proverbs that Reagan loved and put into his speeches was a, a Russian proverb that means trust but verify. It became sort of a staple. We know it as Ronald Reagan's statement. It actually came from a Russian proverb. So when he and Gorbachev would talk about what they were trying to do, what they are trying to pursue, they didn't trust each other for years and years of Cold War. They say, hey, we're going to trust. We're going to be open to reconciliation. We're going to be open that we might be telling the truth. We're going to trust. We're going to be open to this process, but we need to verify the evidence and make sure the other person is humble enough to be open to be examined on the evidence. In 1987, when they signed that treaty, it was in the spirit of trust, but verify that what we say we're doing, we're doing. Many of you might know Marcus. He's our CEO. He's been working with us about a decade. What you may not know is the process we went through in hiring him. Marcus used to work over at Crossroads. He was one of the three you know, longest-lasting uh, staff members over there. He'd been there from the very beginning almost. He and Brian Tome and Brian Wells and many others. And we were good friends with Brian and Brian, and we were uh, getting to be good friends with Marcus, and I knew many, many of his friends. And so he was leaving Crossroads and wanted to come and work here. And so Phil, our CEO, and I uh, and our elders began to sort of interview him. And in the process, we had all kinds of great feedback. You know, incredible worker, incredibly humble guy, you know, gets stuff done, just a real team player. But then we went and got the reference checks from uh, Brian, who we also respected, Brian Tome, and Brian Wells. And of course, you know, you can't give a bad, you know, reference, but then you sort of give the, it's really bad reference, but I can't say it's a bad reference reference, you know what I'm talking about? And so he definitely got the, this is not a good reference reference reference. And so we were having a decision to hire Marcus, and we had sort of feedback on both sides. 
really, really good feedback, and then this other feedback that felt like either, wow, there's a side of Marcus we don't know, or maybe there's somebody there separating the organization far enough, there's some confusion. So uh, we decided that we were going to take a risk uh, on Marcus. We asked him to put some, uh, some humility in place. Every year we're going to ask him about his uh, teachability related to the board and things like that, which he was very open to do. We also said, hey, where did the concern come from? And he was so impacted that there was some confusion with his friend Brian Tome that he went and had lunch with Brian several times and just clarified some of the miscommunication. And he said, you know, my relationship with Brian is better. He was good before. But clearing up that communication, boy, we trust each other even more now than we did before because we went through this circumstance of finding out that there was some misunderstanding and there was some lack of trust. So again, it might be with an old boss, it might be with a friend, it might be when you're hiring, when you're checking references. How do we trust but verify? As we conclude this series and head to Easter, I want to ask you to do this. I want you to rebuild your relationships, right? We've been talking a lot about ships. How do you rebuild your relationship? In fact, the entire book of Acts that we've been looking at, it's designed as an evidence manual. Because Christians... Years after Paul was sort of writing these letters, said, I don't know if we should believe in Paul. So when Luke, Dr. Luke, a historian, was writing the book of Acts, he wrote it very intentionally as an evidence-based book. And sometimes when you're reading verse by verse, you don't see it. When you see it at a little broader scope, you can see the whole thing is a giant evidence-based manual. The first half of the book of Acts is about a man named Peter. People knew Peter. Peter had been with Jesus. Peter had had seen Jesus when he was resurrected. Uh, Peter had... Uh, preach big sermons at Pentecost. And so when Luke is writing, he says, what are the things that Peter does? And the different chapters talk about big things Peter does. Peter healed a lame man. Well, that's a big deal. His shadow one time, you may not believe this, but this is what the Bible says occurred. His shadow one day healed a guy. Well, that's pretty impressive. His success made his enemies jealous, Peter. He dealt with a Simon, a sorcerer, this magician, had this encounter with him. He laid hands on people and they received God's spirit. And then in chapter 9, he raised a woman back to life. So what happens is people are reading like, yep, that sounds like Peter. Peter doing the same kind of things Jesus did. Evidence, 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 evidence. Then what Luke does, he says, I want you to believe that Paul has made real changes. So he purposely, of all the things he could pick out of Paul's life, he specifically picks things that mirror what Peter had done. Look what happens with Paul. Paul in Acts 14, the back half of the book, he healed a lame man. It wasn't his shadow, but he had a handkerchief that healed somebody. His success made his enemies jealous. He dealt with a sorcerer as well named Bar-Jesus. He laid hands on people and they received God's spirit. And he raised a different person to life. Luke wrote this book in a very intentional way so people reading it who did not believe Paul would see that God had been working in his life through evidence that he could be trusted. So here's my challenge to you. If you've broken trust, don't condemn the other person for being skeptical, at least initially. At least initially. Be open to providing evidence to the changes. And ask yourself if you're bringing to bear whatever it takes humility. Because the most humble man ever to live on earth was a man named Jesus, who claimed to be God And yet he did not take all the rights of being God. Instead, he humbled himself, even humbled himself to death on a cross. He emptied himself, is what Philippians tells us. He lived with that kind of humility. And if you're on the the broken end where somebody broke trust with you, I would say it's okay to be skeptical, but don't live there. 
if the person is trying to make changes, be open to a process, not sort of like forever, we don't know everything, a process where you will begin to examine the evidence, where you, you'll find that as evidence is provided, your trust level, if, if they, they're doing what they're supposed to do, will begin to grow and your fear level will begin to go down. Bring humility too, not self-righteousness, that you would never have done something like this. Realize your own brokenness. You didn't do it this time, but you're equally capable of doing broken things and hurting people. Let humility come into your life so that you can restore a relationship with a brother, with a daughter, with a colleague, and with a friend. And let us as a church, we want to be a church that practically teaches all of us how to live life. The life that Jesus spoke about is living the best kind of life. The reason we do what we do, the reason we're preparing for Easter coming up, is we want you to live the best kind of life. A life of forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time today. Thank you for the reminder of how powerful you are and how you work. Continue to work in our relationships as we prepare for Easter. In Jesus' name, amen. And before we go, speaking of Easter, we would love to have you come to one of our Easter services. There are complimentary tickets available at the rear atrium. Seven services, three on Saturday, four on Sunday. If you've got kids, we'd love you to come to the Saturday service. You can come see a helicopter drop of eggs. We've got a train that's going to go around the lake. We've got a petting zoo, all kinds of fun stuff. Grab tickets for that as well. We will see you this weekend. Just make sure you have your complimentary ticket so we have seats for everyone. Thanks for being here.